0: Dr. Robert Jones is a well-known teacher and author in the biblical counseling movement. He's uh, a fellow with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He's a professor at Southern Seminary in biblical counseling in Louisville. He fulfills a number of other roles in Christian conciliation and the biblical counseling coalition. Uh, He's written a number of books, uh, one of which that we have, Uprooting Anger, of course, which is what the seminar is about. And I'll just mention We have a great price on this in the bookstore. I think it's six and a quarter right now, which it's like a $14 book. So over 50% off. Uh, We got a bunch of them. We definitely want you to benefit from that. Uh, Another excellent book, Pursuing Peace, How to Respond Our Conflicts or uh, Resolve Our Conflicts Biblically, that's coming in. Unfortunately, it's arriving Monday. So we'll have it next Sunday in the bookstore. And then some little CCF booklets that are excellent, journal articles He's, he's written quite a bit. Uh, He's been around a long time. He's been faithful to God's word. So we're so glad to have him and his wife, Lauren, with us this morning. They're from our neck of the woods originally, from uh, over by Philly and and Jersey. Uh, They've been married 37 years. They have two sons. Yeah, excellent, 37 years. Uh, Two sons, daughter-in-law, two granddaughters. Um, And and we're very grateful for them. Bob's a, a faithful teacher and counselor. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last couple of years. I've seen his his concern to, to see Christians know and understand the gospel, to, to walk in the grace of God. And so uh, we are looking forward to benefiting from him this morning. So would you please welcome Dr. Jones as he comes to teach? Well, since that
1: information about my granddaughters was made known, we've had two since then. So... Just in the last couple of minutes, apparently, we have, uh, we have four uh, now. But one is brand-newly announced. So, one is... <laughs> she's Yeah, right. right. Um, thank you, Steve, for your introduction. I've looked forward to this for a long time. In fact, right way over a year, because we ended up postponing this. But I'm so glad to be here, as Steve mentioned. We are from this kind of region anyway. I grew up in uh, the Jersey Shore, Neptune, Asbury Park, Ocean Grove, that part of New Jersey. Lauren grew up in the Horsham, Willow Grove, that area, Horsham, Hatboro, Willow Grove. And uh, we've been to Lancaster a couple times, but we, we enjoy it. One of little stories that I, I mentioned, uh, I, was, I listened to my president, Dr. Al- Albert Moeller, regularly on the briefing. And it was announced one day that he was going to Lancaster, um, Pennsylvania. And I was too new on the faculty to dare to try to issue any correction to Dr. R. Albert Bowler, Jr. <laughs> so I just kind of let it go. I talked to one of my faculty members and said, well, you know, should I say... He said, "Ah, you maybe not want to do that, Bob. So I... I did never correct Dr. Moller about to coming to Lancaster. Um, but anyway, we love uh, being in this part of the, the country. Uh, I'm excited about this topic, not because I have a mastery of it. I don't. I find myself regularly struggling with that. Um, even, even the trip up here, some argument in the car, we're just constantly needing to learn how to handle this problem of, of anger. So, I'm uh, sorry I didn't set this the way I want. Um, well, Steve mentioned that I've had the privilege of doing a, um, a book, and I've, I, in order to do that, I had to do a research on the topic of anger. And I will tell you, as a result of my extensive research, a lot of research. I've come to the conclusion statistically that approximately one out of one people. And if you are married, the stats double. It's approximately two out of two people. And add a child or two to the mix. And what do we have? Four out of four. I the stats just get astronomical in time. Well, I I, I laugh about that, but even as Steve illustrated it, as I mentioned, and all sorts of opportunities, God gives us to respond in grace, and we choose too often to respond in anger. All of us have anger issues. This is a very common problem. I think you'll find it in every culture. It might look different the way people behave in every land. In every relationship, really, it's a universal problem. Every generation, every church, every family, no one is isolated from its presence. No one is immune from this problem of anger. It permeates each person. It's part of the fallen human fabric of life between the comings of Christ and and, um, even before then. Now, we might not always call it anger. We might call it, I'm hurt, I'm uh, disappointed, I'm frustrated, I'm upset, I'm irritated. But I'm going to argue that today that even those words that might have a little bit of different hue to them, a little bit different nuance, are all going to come from the same kind of heart. And we want to talk about what's going on in the heart that leads to these outward displays. So that's the common problem, but there's good news also. This book that we think about a lot, the Bible, has a lot to say about anger. The Bible is all about anger. And because it's all about anger, God, who loves us, has given us help and hope on how to deal with this particular problem. And so the reality of the anger uh, problem sobers us, but God in grace comes and he offers us Bible is all about anger. Start in Genesis. Watch the patriarchs as they interact with each other and uh, and enemies that arise. Watch the Israelites as they sojourn through the Book of Numbers. Turn over to the judges and watch them in action and the kings, first and second Samuel and the Kings and Chronicle books and. And, and, and we enter into the struggles of the psalmists. Often that would be godly anger, but even there you wonder at places. Uh, Proverbs has an awful lot to say. We'll say a little bit about that today. And then as we uh, move, move on, we, we find the prophets. The prophets themselves with righteous anger, but often exposing the sinful anger of God's people. And, of course, the wrath of God to come upon those who reject him, upon the nations. And we turn into the Gospels. We don't get past the first book in the New Testament. We don't get past chapter 2 when you have Herod in his royal rage erupting and putting to death uh, infants. We see our Lord Jesus interacting with the Jewish leaders, and we see anger being displayed By them and the righteous anger of Jesus. And uh, we read about the Apostle Paul and his counsel on dealing with anger, which we'll look at some of that today as well. We hear Peter, we hear James issuing piercing reproofs. And then the whole Bible ends with scenes of wrath God's wrath against the nations who, in turn, have wrath against God. And so from cover to cover, whether it's a narrative, whether it's a precept, it's a lot to say about anger. This book is all about anger. Well, we want to ask the question here as we start, what is anger? How do we think about it? I'm going to suggest to you a kind of working definition, and we'll, we'll talk through this particular way to think about anger. So I'm going to suggest to you today that anger is a whole person, a whole person response of, of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. A whole person response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. As we unpack this, we want to think about several of the concepts here. First, it's an activity. We need to think of anger primarily as an action. It's something we do, uh, not a thing not like a force, not like a fluid. Sometimes people refer to this as the hydraulic theory of anger. There's like this fluid inside. Or if you don't mind me using the word, the, the pus theory of anger that you've got to lance. There's this thing inside me. It's, it's like a virus. It's external. It comes into me somehow. And it's floating in there. And I have to lance it. I have to kind of expel it somehow. Got to get it out of my system. Uh, this is a person who he, I just got to get it off my chest. I got to get it out of my my system. Uh, uh, he, he's got to get that anger thing under control. We say about a person, it's a whole person response. It engages the entire being. We we call anger and. Therapists often will refer to anger as an emotion. Well, the, the, the word emotion is kind of a tricky thing in our, in our culture. Because often when we think of emotion, we think of emotions that we express. We think of what we might call uh, affect, feelings, sensibility kinds of things. But as we explore this topic of anger, I think we find it's more whole person than that. It's not just an emotional Response. So we call it emotion. It's a little confusing. Because really there's a whole set of, of thought, cognition. There's, there's, there's desires. There's affections. There's things that I want in life. And these are the things that actually are actually more important for us to consider than just the outward feelings and expressions that we might call emotional responses there. So it's more than just that emotion in that sense we also need to recognize that anger is a response to something. It doesn't just kind of happen. Something provokes us. Uh, there's an occasion for the anger. Now, it might be what some therapists might call an a extra-psychic, something that happens outside of your mind, like you discover a bagel that isn't what you wanted, Right? Something happens to you, extra, outside of your mind. Or it could be what we might call an auto-psychic. Something that you remember that has happened to you. Well, I'm sure some of us deal with anger, and there's no immediate cause next to us. No one has said anything, but we think about something that happened in the past. We think about some relationship, that person who did me wrong. And there's a kind of internal Provocation that's occurred, even though there's no one outside of you hurting you at that point. We'd also want to say that this is a response to something that we perceive as evil, something wrong. Uh, My my main mentor to think about anger has been uh, the late David Pallison. Had the privilege of studying under David, he was my chairman for my um, doctoral work at Westminster. And there's kind of an irony about the book that I did because I was a student under David. And by the time I finished my doctoral work in the area of anger, I was ready to convert it into a popular book. And so I contacted um, P&R, publisher, long-term, long-time trusted uh, group there, and they said, I'm um, sorry, Bob. We like what you're doing here, but we already have a contract with David Pallison. Like, so I said, "Well, what do you mean, David Pall? Who's no, no, <laughs> no? Well, please." <laughs> so I sent it at somewhere else and, and kind of shipped or shopped around a little bit. And they said, "We like it, but it's not what we're going to try to do now, et etc., etc." So, well, then I heard that the contractual relationship had had broken, and so they contacted me. They will publish it. Twenty years later, I feel like, maybe not quite that long, David's book finally came out, and it's it's really good. I highly recommend it, it's called Good and Angry. But one of the things he, he says there I think is really helpful, a good summary here. It's an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and as wrong. Now, I listen to the news. I, I listen to uh, sometimes BBC World News. And I hear about all sorts of wrong things going on throughout the world. But, you know, I, I'm, honestly, it really doesn't raise my ire <laughs> very much because I, they're not, I don't know those people. They're not important to me. But when something that's important to me gets threatened, that's what we're talking about here. And so even as we try to minister to one another, I'm not going to make this into a counseling seminar, but I'm going to definitely make it into a one another care for each other within the body of Christ. You know, as, as you find yourself and friends, family members becoming angry, you know, you, we have to recognize there's something important here that means something to them. And that's going to explain, at least in, in part, why they're angry. One of the things that Ken Sandy um, used to impress upon some of us who, who did some training with Ken Sandy is that whenever someone criticizes you, and, and, and maybe it's coming out in an angry tone, there's there's a legitimate concern that person has, and it's incumbent upon us, and us particularly for us as leaders, it's incumbent upon us to understand. What is their concern, even though they're voicing it in wrong ways and they're maybe ninety nine percent off? Where is that proper concern that they care about, and how can I try to understand and enter into their situation uh, a, a fifth insight here that anger is arises from our our perception, our personal perception, and that could be accurate or it can be. Inaccurate. Uh, The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 20, uh, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so uh, God sees what's truly good and what's truly evil, but my perceptions might be wrong. And I'll say more about that when we talk about uh, unrighteous anger. In many ways, the heart of what I'm getting at here is the, the sixth point. It's a moral judgment we make. Think of anger as a form of judgmentalism. Now, judgmentalism, we typically reserve that for wrong thing. But just in terms of judgmenting people or judging people, one prominent psychologist calls anger the moral emotion. Anxiety, fear, worry, depression, they don't have the same kind of that's wrong. But with anger, you have a moral quality. I'm declaring something to be wrong and I'm making a judgment. About you, And so, again, it's a personal perception. I might be um, uh, judging wrongly. And one other point we have to make that our Lord Jesus makes often, and it's not so much in the definition, but it's in the, in the setting. Anger is something that's done before God. It incurs God's judgment. God sees it. And more on that when we talk about why we must deal with our anger issues. 1 John says it very powerfully. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. 1 John 3 verse 15. So that's what anger is, it's this whole person, it's, it's my thinking, my desires, my whole being responds against you, something you've done or said or something uh, that you, you done or did or said in the past or something you do or say right now and, it, 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 and I respond in a judgment against you and I express it outwardly or inwardly and we'll talk more about that. Well, let's think about the categories that the Bible introduces for us here about anger. I want to think of uh, four categories here, a little bit of overlap on one of them. First is the righteous anger of God himself. In fact, if you were to do a Bible study, a word study of the terminology for anger in Old and New Testament, and you were to go through each of those words, you would find that by far, by far, the most references to anger in the Bible is God's anger, God's wrath. God's wrath is just much more prominent throughout the whole Bible. God is a righteous judge, Psalm 7, verse 11. A God who expresses his wrath every day. Isaiah 34, 2. The Lord is angry at the nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. But when you turn to the New Testament, of course, we find a kinder and gentler God, don't we? John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath abides. God's wrath remains on them, on, on the whoever. Or Romans 1, the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Who what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's anger. God's anger what we deserve. God's anger that has been dealt with in Jesus Christ for us. Because of the cross we don't receive what we deserve. Uh, Steve and I were actually talking about uh, Romans 3 the other day in a a Zoom call. Um, How can God be both just, maintain his holy standards, including then the wrath against those who violate those holy standards, and nevertheless justify us, declare us righteous in his sight. Well, it's through the cross where God's anger met our sin, but not in our personhood, but in the place of our substitute. Till on that cross, As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I what? I live. I live in light of that cross. Crossway Church, sisters and brothers, keep that ever before you. The righteous anger, second category of Jesus. The God-man. I'll say a little bit more as we walk through this later, but let me say some things right here. Uh, I find two crystal clear examples where anger language is used of Jesus. And then a third one that has a word that probably has a feel of anger to it. Let me mention those two incidents. One is in Mark chapter 3. And I'll give you opportunity if you'd like to turn to that, that passage. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus meets the, a man on the Sabbath who is in need of healing. His, his hand is, is withered. And as he engages in this on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees oppose our Lord's intention to heal the man. And uh, Jesus confronts them about their view of the Sabbath And verse 5 of Mark 3 tells us, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. By the way, you talk about strange bedfellows. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not friends, but they did create a common, they did have a common enemy, didn't they? Our Lord Jesus. But he looked around at them in anger. Well, we'd expect that against the Pharisees, but even against his own disciples. In Mark chapter 10, you, you know the story. People were bringing their little children to Jesus to have him touch them, to to. Uh, to, to bless them in, in some way. Um, but the disciples rebuked these these parents for bringing the, the children. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, Mark 10, verse 14. Not at the parents. Not at the parents. It was the disciples for rebuking these parents and their, and their children. And there you have the famous phrase, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. What a beautiful picture of, uh, of, a, of a righteous anger... Concurrently, with a gentle touch, it's a beautiful picture of our Lord, who's under control with His emotions. We also find this language in, in a similar language, I think, in John chapter two, the uh, the temple cleansing there in John two, where we learn that our Lord Jesus um, made a whip out of cords, drove all from the temple area including the animals, by the way. Uh, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And then John records this. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I would see that as a kind of righteous anger happening right there. Zeal for your house. Now, what's interesting to me, at least, is that as I read my um, New Testament, as I read the four gospel accounts, these are actually the only two, and then maybe this third place, where the language of anger is attributed to Jesus. Now, I don't want to conclude from that observation that there was no other anger of Jesus. I think there were some other examples we could point to. Go tell Herod that fox. I mean, certainly there's a kind of judgment and anger component there. And he turns to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, that's a pretty strong rebuke. I would say that's anger also. But what I find interesting is that you don't see many of those examples. I don't think it's right to conclude that Jesus was often angry. Now, at least from the text. It's always hard for us to try to you know, guess things like this. He certainly had a righteous thought about sin around him, but I'm not sure it came out in what we would call anger, at least not often. In fact, that place where we would most expect anger to come out of any human being is when they're being crucified. And in First Peter chapter two, we actually learn that, that, that Jesus did not respond. That way. Now, he was very active on the cross, very active. But what he was actively doing was entrusting himself to his faithful father. Now, that's in the gospel times. That's also in the current day. There is coming a day, we know, that when Christ returns, he will come with wrath against the nations. Here's the third category I think we can look at is righteous anger. ...of other humans. I see other humans. Jesus is human. So Jesus bridges category one and category three. So category three now, the righteous anger of other humans. And we could look at several of these examples. I'm going to just uh, mention uh, the, the, the two last ones that I've noted in your notes for you. Uh, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. This is an amazing passage... 1 Samuel 20, verse 33. Here's the scene. You know that Jonathan and David were very close friends, very close friends. And Jonathan, uh, being the uh, son of Saul, knew that his father didn't like David and intended to kill David. And so in 1 Samuel 20, Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill Jonathan, his son, because Jonathan had warned David, don't come to this meal, because, uh, you know, my father's out to get you. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Verse 34, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. Well, yeah, throw a spear at me. He got up the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the month, he did not eat. Because he was grieved, well, yeah, at his father's shameful treatment of, of David. Now, was there no anger against that? I don't want to conclude that. But I want to conclude that, that Jonathan was so kingdom-minded, knew that God had had appointed David to be the successor, that the anger is against his, his dad for opposing the kingdom of God. I've listed a number of verses from Psalm 119, I think is another example here. Psalm 119. I'm not going to turn to those. We'll turn to one a little bit later here. But let me say something about Psalm 119. If we were to do a word association test and I said to you, Psalm 119, uh, many of you who know your Bible well would say, oh yeah, that's like 176 verses about the Bible, and you'd be absolutely correct. It's all about God's Word. But it's not only just about God's Word. It's about a personal relationship ...that the spirit-inspired psalmist has with this God. I, I, tell, I tell my students, you know, you guys are taking theology courses. And you're going to read a book, uh, Systematic Theology, about the Word of God. The, the category they call Bibliology, the study of the Bible. And it's going to be written about the Bible, kind of in a third person. And uh, it's going to be probably pretty dry uh, often... I think Grudem's the warmest of them all, but, you know, anyway, it's my favorite. Uh, It's going to be pretty dry stuff. Open to Psalm 119 and read through it. And tell me how that compares to the systematic theology about the Bible. Psalm 119, in one sense, I can say this carefully here, is not about the Word. It's about your Word. Now, at the very beginning, there's a couple of places where it's, you know, about the Word. But once you get past the first opening verses, throughout 176 verses, it's not about the Word, it's about your Word, O oh Lord. There's this personal relationship. I'll go a step further. It's not only about a personal relationship with the Lord, where he's communing with God through his Word, through Scripture, but the emotional span in Psalm 119. You want to get a feel about the emotions in the Bible? All the Psalms will help you, of course, but just read Psalm 119. There is anger and joy, and sometimes they're right next to each other. There is sorrow and sadness and downcastness, kind of that sadness-depression kind of thing. There's anxiety and fears and worries. Psalm 119 has the whole range, the whole spectrum, the whole gamut of emotional responses, including anger. In those verses I've given you, there particularly address anger. Well, one more category, and it's the one we have to unfortunately spend a lot of time on today, and that would be the, the sinful anger of humans. The sinful anger. Now, say a little bit more about these distinctions here. I don't want to spend time on it right now. Of concealed anger versus revealed anger. There's a way in which sometimes we just conceal it. We don't let it be known to that person. Other times we reveal it. Typically we reveal it through through yelling or outward explosive actions, but sometimes it's more like that coldness where I just kind of pull away from you and we begin to distance ourselves from you and I really don't want to spend much time with you. Other times it's, why did you do that? Proverbs has an awful lot to say. About the expression of anger, the, the revelation, the revealed anger. But there's also some forms I would argue for kind of concealed anger. Well, that leads to the main application question for us here in this first session How do we know? How can we tell if our, righteous, our anger is righteous or sinful? Have you heard someone say this? Have, have you said it? Yeah, I was angry. But I had a right to be angry. After all, Jesus got angry. My anger was righteous. Anger. How often have you heard it? How often have you, have you said it? How often have you thought it? How often have you tried to justify it in your own mind? Well, how do we think this through? How do we know whether our anger is righteous, whether our anger is, is sinful? If we start with just kind of an analysis of the Bible, we might observe that while God is the most angry person, statistically, in the Bible, and concurrently, of course, the most loving, and the just and the justifier, we've mentioned that, the cross brings those together. When you look at the uh, usage of Scripture for human anger, uh, one of the most frequent Old Testament terms for anger you find it 47 times. Of these 47 uses of the Hebrew term, um, at least 42 of those refer to sinful anger. There are some positive examples. I've mentioned some earlier here under point 3 above. You, you, You see that. But most of the anger, even in the Bible, seems to be dealing with sinful anger. And I think when we apply the criteria I'm going to suggest to us this morning, I think we're going to find that most of our anger, if we're honest, is not righteous. We think it is, but it's not. So let me suggest to you three criteria, three marks to measure righteous anger. Here's how we know when the anger is righteous, and it's the opposite of this that would lead us to say this is not righteous anger. First, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. Righteous anger understands what is rightly to be seen as right and rightly to be seen as wrong, right and wrong according to God's Word, not preferences, not food preferences, not how your spouse squeezes the toothpaste tube. So here's one of those questions I have. When I think about marital things. Where should the toothpaste tube be kept? Can it be kept on the counter? Or does it have to go into a drawer? Can I do a survey? Is that okay? (laughs) How many of you think that the toothpaste tube and the toothbrush and things like that can just sit out on the counter... And how many think you have to go be put in the drawer each day? So let's see how many people are counter people, how many people are drawer people. How many people think it's okay to have this on the counter, sit out on the counter? How about the drawer? Are you serious? Did you see this? Man, you guys are wrong, that second... Well, maybe that's not accurately to perceive right and wrong at that point. Um, I, I, I can't fathom this. You know, Lord, I had this discussion. She is actually caved to my preference, right? Just leaving on the counter. Uh, I, I'm su- actually surprised. That really did surprise me. Did it surprise anyone else? maybe not gosh okay I'm the oddball here minority here you know what are your preferences is that a, a right judgment to make all right so I'm a Green Bay Packer fan all my life now now hold on a little bit here the Packers I didn't say I'm a cowboy fan Righteous anger reacts against actual sin. I must say there are times I think I maybe hold a little bit of anger against the eagles. I must say.
0: Ephesians
1: chapter four and verse twenty six tells me that I shouldn't let anger I shouldn't let the sun go down on my anger. Chapter four, verse twenty-six. The true Eagle fans know what I'm about to say. I talked to my friend here. (laughs) How can the Green Bay Packers, with a minute and twelve seconds left in a game, with the Eagles having the ball on their own twenty-one yard line, fourth and twenty-six now, fourth and twenty-six? How can the Packers let McNabb throw a, a pass, and caught by Mitchell, I guess, and, and somehow get a first down, which I guess that was even debated, if I remember whether exactly where it landed. Okay, like, come on, I'm kind of angry my team didn't. But that's not righteous anger at all. And I really don't dislike Philadelphia. I don't, I really don't. Uh, the Bears, that's a different discussion. <laughs> if you're a Packer fan, the Vikings. I think that if you were to consider some of the things that you get angry about, you would recognize that these are matters of personal preference, and they really are not something that God would declare to be a right or wrong attitude or motive. Secondly, righteous anger focuses on God and God's kingdom and God's rights and God's concerns. Not on me and my kingdom and my rights and my concerns. Righteous anger says, may your kingdom come. Sinful anger says, May my kingdom come on earth right now as I wish it would actually go on in heaven as well. I wish God would ordain and, and, and agree with all my desires and demands. I think Saul, I think Jonathan's response would illustrate that. I'm going to double back and talk about Jesus and all three of these criteria after I give you Uh, All three of them. Well, here's the third one. Let me jump to it. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. I mentioned Psalm 119. Here's a few verses. Uh, By the way, these verses are are from NIV 84, and tomorrow I'll be using the ESV. Um, But uh, Psalm 119... I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. So on the one hand, as he thinks about God's word, he finds comfort. Concurrently, within the same beating heart, he has indignation against those who violate God's word. Is, is the person is he living under in a, in a world of comfort? Is a soul comforted or is it Agitated. Well, yes, it's both and. Because the godly soul can encompass all those things. Like our Lord Jesus. And then the next verse, having just said about indignation, grips me. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. So he's able to sing and yet have indignation. Verse 103 and 104, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. This, this same Bible that's sweet also leads me to anger when I think about violations of those who, follow this, who don't follow this path. I mean, what's it look like for us? Do you get so, what you think is righteous anger, but you can't talk to that person any further? You have to pull away? Is there a mixture of anger and and godly qualities of grace? That's what righteous anger looks like. Let's just think about our Lord. Think of these criteria, okay? Reacts against actual sin, focuses on God and his kingdom. Accompanied by other godly qualities. It reacts against actual sin. In Mark 3, the Pharisees are prohibiting Messiah Jesus from doing what he's called to do bringing healing. That was prophesied of him, that was part of what his ministry was to entail, but they rejected him. And so Christ shows that anger against those Pharisees. The disciples opposing the children from coming, this is wrong. Jesus understood that to be wrong. And making the temple a den of thieves, making it a place of evil, this was actual sin against which Jesus is responding. How about the second criteria? A focus on God and his kingdom, not me and my kingdom. In the Gospel accounts, People often sinned against our Lord Jesus, frequently, constantly. Obviously, the Pharisees, those who opposed him in that way, but even at times, his disciples, right? But you don't see angry response when you do something just against me, against Jesus. What do you see? Well, In Mark 3, when they try to oppose his messianic ministry and his trying to heal this man's hand, then there's anger. When, in in Mark 10, they try to prevent these little children from coming to him, blunting, as the passage talks about, the very visual illustration Jesus was using of having the children come. The kingdom belongs to such as these. This is not just care for children it 's there, but don 't limit that you 'll miss the bigger picture. The children coming to him are symbolic. Jesus says it. The kingdom is for such like these, unless you enter as little children. right He teaches elsewhere there 's a sense in which there's a sermon illustration that 's being ruined by his own disciples and then of course, John chapter two is an obvious case you 've made my father 's house there 's a sense in which I want to say this carefully because I don't think, I think there's a wrong way for us to apply it and, and you know, put yourself as, out there as like an abuse victim or something like that. But there's a sense in which Jesus says this. Do what you want to me. Don't go messing with my father's house. Don't go messing with these children. Don't go messing with this man that I need to heal. Crucify me. Lie to me. Lie about me. all the things that was done to Jesus he didn't respond with that anger it's because his heart was bent towards the will of his father and then how about that third criteria accompanied by godly qualities the anger that Jesus displays doesn't leave him out of control he's able to follow the will of his father And so even though the disciple, even though the Pharisees were trying to stop him and using a wrong interpretation of the Sabbath against him to prevent him, what did Jesus do? He had anger, but did he say, forget it. He's withered hand man. Sorry. Next Sabbath, we'll we'll come back and deal with it. I got to cool off first. No, he did his ministry. He didn't allow this anger to stop him from following the will of God because it was a godly anger. Same with the children. He received them. He blessed them. We don't know what the disciples did after the rebuke. I guess they backed off, I assume, because the children did, did come. And then, of course, what did he do with the money changers? He kicked them out. He expressed Boldness, righteous boldness, righteous anger. We don't have a video of it. We don't have an audio of it. I don't think we have a man who's gone berserk. I think he was a man of self control, even though there was force expressed. And leadership requires that on occasion. He courageously pursued justice and mercy. Concurrently. Well, what about your anger? Can you just pause for a moment, please, and just just think about it? Think about a recent anger episode, particularly if it's against another person. Let me give us two warnings here. The first warning is to beware of self-deception. Self-deception. I am persuaded that a lot of the anger I think that I would, might try to call righteous is not righteous. The Bible has a lot to say about self-deception. We could think about the kind of a well-known text, Jeremiah 17, Nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or beyond cure. The heart is deceitful. But but some of us recognize that that's a description of probably an unregenerate heart and not a heart that's been born again, not a Christian heart. So does the Christian heart, the regenerate heart, the believer's heart, have remaining self-deception within it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In other words, we can't just avoid Jeremiah 17.9. We might recognize that we have a new heart, but the new heart has what we might call remnant sin, the flesh that continues to fight against the Holy Spirit's work within us. And so we're told in Ephesians 4, put off your old self, the old man, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Deceitful heart continues. We have this powerful exhortation for us as a body, for a congregation, in Hebrews chapter 3, see to it. Brothers, brothers and sisters, sisters and brothers, seek to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. That what? That that turns away from the living God. The stakes are high here. These are not faux pas. (laughs) These are things that can lead to apostasy. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, referencing Psalm 95... So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If I can quote Paul Tripp at this point Sin is deceitful, and guess who it deceives first? Self deception. James chapter 3, if you harbor bitter envy, James three fourteen and 15, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. Selfish ambition, and bitter envy, a deceitfulness there. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar, First John chapter 1. The Bible has a lot to say in the New Testament for us as Christians about the problem of self-deception. And I think this is one of those places where it most often appears. I'd like to think it's righteous anger when I give instruction to someone, when I discipline my sons when they were younger and still in the home. But I will say too often it was not righteous anger. It was my own inconvenience that ruled me. Those times when I might try to say, you know, son, you need to do this or that, stop doing that. Is it really because I love that kid enough and I just want justice and righteousness to prevail within him. I wish that were the case but too often it was, look what you're doing to me and inconveniencing me. Are you aware of the problem of self deception? I've I've counseled people who've admitted their anger but I've learned to say I don't just want to stop with whether you're owning that you've, you're angry here. What do you think about that anger? Because someone can say, well, yeah, I was angry. You're right, I was angry. Yes, I admit I was angry. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that anger? Was it right or wrong? That's another good question to follow up here, even as we try to minister to one another. And, of course, the classic example uh, for me is Jonah. Where he just says it to God. Basically says, don't I have a right to be angry? Do I not have a right to be angry? He believed he did, apparently. And, uh, you yeah. know, God, you're going to go ahead and, and save these wicked people? And you want me to be a, an instrument to, to bring redemption to these people? I don't think so, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was sinful anger, and God, of course, confronted him on that. Beware of self-deception, brothers and sisters. It's there within our hearts. How do you deal with that? Well, you continue to study God's word and pray. You begin to think about these passages like this. And uh, you go to God and you own it and you ask him to forgive you and you ask him to to peel away those blinders that lead you to the self-deceived conclusion that you're right. You want some help in that? Ask your friend. Ask your spouse. Ask your children. I, I can remember times at, at uh, mealtime with Lauren when the kids were younger. Uh, particularly Dan, Lauren, you, you probably would feel this way. Like, Lauren and I would have a uh, a discussion. <laughs> That Probably the decibel level went a little higher than it should have. And he would say, will you stop arguing? I'm like, we're not arguing, Dan. But I think, and I think, Lauren, you were more sensitive to that than I was there. That there was sinful anger going on, and my son saw it. Your children will see it they will question is whether you're going to allow their observation to be used by the lord and not become defensive kid what do you know well here's what they know they see it they see the anger beware of self deception and with god's help cultivate Christ-like anger, righteous anger. Ask God to develop this within you. Ask him for that help. It's not something you're going to self-generate. It's something you're going to prayerfully ask the Lord to give you. As you, again, grow in your understanding of what God's will is, what God's standards are, If I can self-critique the uh, Uprooting Anger book, and if I ever do a revision of that, I I think I need to spend more time thinking about this very point of what does righteous anger look like. I think it's a good self-critique that I would make, and I think others have suggested the same thing to me. I think if you read David's um, book, he's got a little more balance, and Ed Welch has a book on anger as well. These are my mentors and heroes in many ways. What do we want to pray for? We want to pray to have a Hebrews 1 heart where it says about Jesus, about the Messiah, Hebrews 1 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Do you get that phrase? You have loved righteousness. And hated wickedness. That's what I want to be increasingly. That's what I want you, my friends, to be increasingly. People who, mar- who are marked by a love of righteousness. Including righteous anger and a hatred of wickedness. I want to, uh, I want to pray for us here at this point. Uh, and ask our God to guide us, to help us. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize, even as we contemplate our own anger moments, we recognize that. There are a lot of desires and demands within us that lead us to these angry responses. We confess before you this morning that some, if not much, perhaps in some cases all of our anger is not righteous. It's not like our Lord Jesus in, Mo- in uh, Mark 3 or... Mark 10. It's not like the John 2 overturning the the money changers. It's not about you and your kingdom. It's about me and my kingdom. And we own that before you today. And we thank you that you have provided a glorious Savior for us. That you have taken our enmity, our hostility our opposition against you, our sinful anger against you that has marked our lives prior to our conversion. And you have changed our heart that by your Holy Spirit, you've done a miracle. You've regenerated us. You've given us a brand new heart. You've made us a new creature. You've given us new life. You've raised us from the dead. And that we have hearts now that love you, albeit imperfectly, albeit we fall short, and we know that. We thank you for that. That's what you've done to our anger. And we thank you for what you've done with your anger, that you have poured it out. But not upon us, but upon our Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so, as recipients of this glorious grace, as those who have the Holy Spirit within us now. Would you help us to own our sinful anger, to confess it before you, to confess it before others? And would you forgive us by your grace? Thank you for this opening time together. Help us as we continue this morning and on into this afternoon. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.